Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to um, the Old Testament, to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3. Uh, if you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Life Hacks. And uh, in case you'd never heard of it, a life hack is, um, is defined by our culture as any technique or strategy adopted to manage one's life and activities in a more skillfully wise and efficient manner. For example, according to a study published in the Journal of Psychological Science, researchers have found that the simple act of touching money reduces physical and emotional pain. So uh, apparently, next time you're feeling bad and a little stressed out, grab a wad of ones, and if you're feeling really bad, a wad of 20s, and, uh, and see what happens. But uh, that's, you get the idea, that's a life hack, something you do that, to manage life well. Um, our contention in the series is that while the terminology is new, the concept is not. More than 2,700 years ago, God provided his people with spiritual life hacks, more commonly known as Proverbs, wise strategies for skillful living. Keep in mind, these Proverbs are not laws or promises, they're not formula-like guarantees. Uh, but they are astute observations. They are inspired descriptions of how life works most of the time. And they reflect the everyday complexities of our human existence, offering practical advice on how we might navigate those complexities uh, with God-honoring wisdom. And here in chapter three, we have a rather famous proverb that you've probably heard before many times, maybe not, but I, I think likely you have. It's in chapter three, beginning in verse five, we're told this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. And here's my, here's my Ray K translation of that. Trust in God with all your heart and your mind. Submit to what he says is right and true and good and best for you and experience his grace. Don't be arrogant. Humbly revere God and avoid evil. It's the healthiest way to do life. I mean, that's essentially, well, that's essentially what the author is saying here. But, um, but then he immediately follows up with a, a couple of very interesting comments. He immediately says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Now, I don't know how you see or hear those statements, but for me, at least initially, it didn't seem like they were at all connected. And uh, a cursory reading of them um, doesn't necessarily reveal any correlation. However, I gotta tell you, after some more careful study, uh, I'm prepared to suggest to you that there is a correlation between the statements, uh, a correlation which is quite logical and practical. And here's how I came to that conclusion. After reading verses five through eight, I asked myself the question, do I trust in the Lord with all my heart and my mind? And do I submit to him? Even when I don't understand what's going on around me, do I humbly revere God no matter what? And of course my answer was, you know, for the most part, yes. But then it dawned on me that what the author writes next represents two life situations that have a way of testing whether or not that's true. I mean, think about it. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and do not despise the Lord's discipline. 
And just so you know, the Hebrew term for discipline here doesn't mean punishment. Doesn't mean punishment, but it does mean pain. The kind of pain that makes a person a better, stronger person. So you may say, well, okay, but I still don't get the connection. Fair enough. Let me summarize it this way. Wisdom seems to be telling us that in life, uh, success and suffering both reveal if we really trust in and revere God or not. Because how we deal with those two things is very, very telling, right? I mean, look, no matter who you are, uh, no matter how spiritual and committed to God you may be, without exception, this is true for every, of us in, uh, every one of us in the room, without exception, in your life, you will experience moments of triumph and trial, moments of prosperity and pain. Now, one, th- one day, everything's going your way, life is wonderful, the next day, nothing's going your way, life stinks. We all will experience those, those times, those times of of great success and serious suffering. And like it or not, those two, those two experiences bring out the best and the worst in all of us. And I'm convinced that's what the author here is getting at. You see, we can say we, can say we trust in God with our heart, with our mind, you know, that we submit to him, that we revere him. We can say those things all we want. But when sudden success or suffering enters our experience, uh then what's true deep down inside gets exposed for what it is. Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis likened it to finding out if you have rats in your basement. He wrote, if there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. The suddenness doesn't create the rats, it only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of a provocation doesn't make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting noisily, they'll have taken cover. They will have taken cover before you switch on the light. What Lewis was saying is that the suddenness of a provocation, or the suddenness of success, or, or or suffering, reveals if there are rats in the cellar. You know, those things reveal what's true deep in the in the dark recesses of our hearts and our minds. So, with that being the case. It, when it comes to trusting in God and revering God, how do these things work? Well, let's talk about success for a second because that's essentially what the author's describing when he writes, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. Uh, the Hebrew term for honor here means to declare in a practical, tangible way uh, that something or someone is great and worthy of praise. In this case, the writer of Proverbs is saying it's, it's the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things. He is worthy of praise. He's worthy of honor. Uh, the Hebrew term for wealth here literally means money and goods. Uh, it's the idea of you know, what you produce with your work, with your life, the, what you earn. Uh, it's a derivative of the Hebrew term for easy. And that's because the Old Testament concept of wealth carried the idea of successfully acquiring and possessing that which makes your life easier. In other words, when you have more than you need to survive, all the money and all the goods that make your life easy, uh, from the scriptural point of view, you are then successfully wealthy. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking that describes the majority of us in this room. And so how, how you and I deal with uh, and handle our success and our wealth says an awful lot about what we believe. And I, you know, don't misunderstand, success, um, success in earning money and acquiring wealth is not a bad thing, it's not. Uh, 
but it can lead to bad things. It can have a, a, a very negative effect on us. I tell you, there are a lot of Proverbs. If you've been reading through the, through the collection, you know that there are a lot of Proverbs that address the topic of money and wealth. And if you read through the collection, you'll find that wisdom warns, warns that success can, it, it can breed arrogance, whereby, whereby we begin to take full credit for all that we have. We begin to think to ourselves, you know, look, man, I'm successful because of me. I'm successful. I have acquired wealth by way of my hard work, my time, my education, my knowledge, my effort. You know, I deserve all that I have. I've earned it. It's mine. No one else's. And yet Proverbs tells us it is the blessing or the favor of the Lord that brings wealth. Translation, everything we have is a gracious gift from God. And you may say, well, I kind of know that. I, I get that. But really, uh, I have worked hard for, my, for what I have. I've worked hard for my stuff. I've put in a lot of time, a lot of effort. And no doubt that's true. But you've done so with what? You've done it with the abilities, the passions, the circumstances, the opportunities, and the health that God has allowed. Without his favor, we'd have nothing. And to believe differently is, is, is arrogant and dismissive. You know, the writer here in Proverbs 3 says, don't be that way. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be so arrogant. Be humble, fear the Lord, and shun such evil. Success can divert our best intentions. You know, how often uh, do you hear people say, man, if I had a better job that paid a little more, I'd be more generous. Really? Studies seem to indicate that that's not true, that your generosity is not based on how much you have. You're either generous or you're not generous. Other people say, you know, well, if I could just win the lottery, if I won the lottery, I would tithe that money to the church. I've heard people say that. Just, just so you know, in the text here, the idea of first fruits is a direct reference to the tithe in Israel. Uh, Israelites were required um, to tithe or give 10% of their, their produce, their income, their earnings to the temple uh, for the work of the temple. And, uh, and so I'll hear people say, man, if I won the lottery, I would do that. I would tithe 10% to the church. And sometimes they say it out, out loud thinking maybe that if God hears them, he'll give them the lotto numbers. I don't know for sure, but, but I mean, seriously, if you won 10 million, would you give a million back to God? I don't know, maybe you would. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. I've heard uh, people say, if I could reduce my debt and increase my level of disposable income, I'd give more to the church. Disposable income. Is that what we think God wants? Is that what we think he deserves? Is that, is that reverence? Disposables? You know, the leftovers? The financial scraps? We pay ourselves first, and if there's anything left, maybe, maybe God gets a little. Is that what we think? Is that how we operate? You know, a lot of people in our culture today, and an awful lot of Christians in the church, readily endorse the idea of radical generosity. And we like to talk about the importance of generous giving. But do we? <laughs> do we? Proverbs says, like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. It's just empty talk. If you think about it, success can restructure our priorities. 
so much to the point where eventually our main focus and goal in life is to get more money, accumulate more wealth and stuff, and that relentless pursuit can then take precedent over our relational lives and our spiritual lives. And the problem with that is, trust me when I tell you, on your deathbed, uh, money won't be a priority. You won't be begging someone to pull your car into the room so you can hold on to it. You know, relationships will be what matters most to you. We'll long to be with those we love, those we care about, and we'll realize that soon we're gonna meet the God who created us. A humbling reality. And that's why Proverbs says, wealth is worthless in the day of judgment, but righteousness delivers from death. And then ultimately, success has a way of displacing our faith. Don't you think that's the case? Don't you think that's true? The wisdom of Proverbs says it's true. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs tells us that um, uh, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, a walled city was considered a place of safety, of refuge. Uh, those who were well-off lived in the city, trusting in its, uh, in its security. The poor, however, lived outside of the city, putting their hope and attaining the wealth that the others possessed in the city. In other words, money, the hope they put in money, that was their fortified city. So what's that proverb telling us? It's telling us that when it comes to security, wealth and money is humanity's most viable alternative to God. And we're all inclined to have have faith in its ability to make us happy and fulfilled and safe and secure. Which is perhaps why studies show that for some people just touching money reduces physical and emotional pain because they have put their hope in it. That's what they're hoping in. But understand, you know, success, wealth, money, it just, it can't ultimately deliver. It won't. It is the ruin of both the rich and the poor and yet we all tend to trust in it much more so than God. Here's the deal. In the consumerized, uh, the commercialized consumer culture in which we live, money has a significant grip on me. And it has a significant grip on you. It has a significant grip on all of us. And we need to recognize that and acknowledge that. And we need wisdom when it comes to dealing with it. The Apostle Paul wrote Christians in the early church, and he said, look, the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil. Not money itself, money is neutral. But he said the love of it, the obsession with it, the pursuit of it can lead to all kinds of evil. Now the flip side of that is um, that success, wealth, and money, if viewed and handled correctly, can be a very good and positive thing. And that's the point Proverbs 3.9 is making, that, that with the success and wealth that we've been graciously given, we can turn and we can honor the giver. We can honor God himself. We can declare his greatness, his worthiness. How? by making it a priority to give back to the Lord our first fruits, not our leftover scraps. Because you see, uh, in the church, just like it was with the temple, through the money we give as a generous offering, the ministry of God gets, uh, gets carried out in and through the work of his people, making an eternal difference uh, in towns, communities, in the world. Children are taught, families are strengthened, the poor are assisted, the sick find hope, the addicted find recovery, the lonely experience community, the truth gets told, the guilty learn of grace, Jesus gets shared, the lost get found, God is honored and publicly worshiped. So you see how it works? You see how, you see how success and the way that we handle it reveals who we are and what we really trust in? 
If we revere God, then we will honor him with our wealth. We will submit and give with radical generosity. Do we? Do you? Uh, The answer to that question is very telling. But then the author writes this. He says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And as, as I've already mentioned, the Hebrew term used here doesn't mean punishment, but it does mean pain. Again, the kind of pain, the kind of adversity that makes a person a stronger person, a better person. So in short, the writer is indicating here that, that God allows suffering into our lives for a reason. He doesn't always divert pain away from us. And for me, you know, for me, the truth of this whole text reflects the brilliance of Proverbs. Uh, because rarely do we see uh, in our daily lives any connection between success and suffering, right? And yet clearly there is. They're two very different experiences, and yet both reveal who we are and what we believe. For example, similar to success, suffering can reveal arrogance. An attitude that says, in the midst of suffering, well, clearly God doesn't know what he's doing. He's at best a buffoon, and at worst a cruel despot. And with a rather inflated opinion of our own ability to comprehend all things and know exactly what's best for us, we, when we suffer as created beings, we arrogantly judge the creator. Proverbs says, the proud and arrogant person behaves with insolent fury. In other words, we, the finite, lash out at the infinite. Now, the deal is this. Nobody wants to experience suffering to any degree on any level. We don't, we, don't, we don't want suffering, but we all do suffer at some point or another. None of us are immune. Understanding that ahead of time helps dealing with it when it comes because it will come into our experience. In this broken world of ours, painful things happen, things that may appear random and seem to carry no good purpose. Yet the writer of Proverbs assures us that even when God allows suffering to touch our lives, he loves us just as a father loves a son or daughter. And in the midst of our our tears, revering God means that with humility, we believe that he loves us and that he knows what he's doing and that he has our best in mind. He knows what he's doing even when we don't. I like how Christian author Ravi Zacharias states it in his book on suffering. Ravi says, freedom from pain is not the only indicator of whether or not something is beneficial. And he's right. Just because I can't imagine a good reason for suffering in my life doesn't mean one can't exist. And that's that's exactly why the writer here says, don't lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't, don't, you're trusting God, don't let that depend on your ability to comprehend everything because you're never gonna comprehend everything. There are things in life you and I will never understand, we will never fully grasp. And if, and if trusting God depends on that, we'll never fully trust him. Along with arrogance, uh, suffering can expose moralism. Uh, it could be a secular type of moralism that says, you know, I've lived a good life. If there is a God out there, he owes me. Or it could be a more religious moralism that says, I believe God exists. And because I'm living a good life, he owes me. See, both views come to the same conclusion. 
they see, both see any relationship to God as a quid pro quo arrangement. And so when we don't get the pain-free existence we want and think we deserve, then suffering breeds bitterness. A lingering anger and resentment fueled by the feelings that, that we've been treated unfairly by God. And so as a result, in some cases, suffering can turn us away from him, even cause us to reject God altogether. But here's the reality, you know, the, the problem of pain and suffering in our world is a problem for everybody, religious and irreligious alike. It's a problem for everyone, not just in terms of, not just in terms of experience, but in terms of explanation, right? Now, with all due respect, it is naive to think that if you reject God, it somehow makes the problem of suffering easier to deal with and to, and to explain. It's not. That's not true. It makes it harder. And I realize that there may be some in the room right here that says, look, I don't care. I don't care, dude. I'm angry at what I see happening around. I'm angry at the pain I've experienced. And no amount of philosophical religious mumbo jumbo you can utter is going to get your Christian God off the hook for the suffering in my life. Fair enough. However, I'd like to point out to you that the core message of Christianity is that God came to earth to deliberately put himself on the hook of human suffering. Right? I mean, if you understand the message of Christianity, then you know that in Jesus, deity came to live among us and experience poverty, hunger, thirst, loss, grief, rejection, betrayal, injustice, injury, violence, torture, pain, and death. In other words, not only is suffering common to the human experience, but it is God's experience as well. The creator didn't just see us as his creation struggling and suffering and drowning in this world of ours and say, hey, good luck, save yourselves. In Jesus, deity jumps into the struggle with us. God suffers and sacrifices his own life to rescue us. And so while it is true, Christianity does not provide definitive reasons for every single person's experience of pain and suffering, it does provide deep resources for actually engaging adversity with humility, hope, and courage rather than arrogance, bitterness, and despair. And let's face it, you know, as much as we don't like this, as much as we don't like it, the fact is suffering... Suffering takes people beneath the routine busyness of everyday life where they quickly find out if they are who they say they are, if they believe what they say they believe. It works that way for all of us. Proverbs 14 explains it this way. When calamity comes, the wicked are brought down, but even in death, the righteous seek refuge in God. So, this week when I was studying and writing, um, I got stuck. You know, I hit this mental wall where I couldn't, I just, I didn't know what was happening in the text. I was struggling. So I got up from the desk and I was walking around bugging everybody else in the office. And whenever I do that, they think I'm done with the message. And like, like, oh, you're done already? It's only Thursday or Wednesday. And no, no, I'm still struggling. I'm, you know, so I hit this wall. 
And then I went back, and, I, and, and the reason was, I, I kept coming to the statement in verse 10 that says, the fear of the Lord, fear, no, fear the Lord and shun evil. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Fear, fear the Lord and shun evil. I kept coming back to it over and over again for, because for some reason it just sounded so familiar to me, and I couldn't figure out why. It took a while, but then I finally figured it out. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Job. Some of you know about him. And in the opening verse of the Old Testament book that tells his story, Job is described with these exact same words. We're told, he feared the Lord and shunned evil. Feared the Lord, shunned evil. And if you were, read, if you were to read the rest of the book and follow the narrative of, of Job's life, you would learn that in a very short period of time, Job experienced the same two situations the writer in Proverbs is, is describing for us. Job went from great success to serious suffering. I mean, he was a very wealthy guy, very successful, and in his success, he remained humble before God. He demonstrated incredible generosity toward people, and, and uh, he was well-loved by the community, well-spoken of. I mean, uh, he, he handled his wealth and success very, very, very well. Job said, he goes, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised no matter what. And then when it came to his suffering, and if you know his story, you know, he, he, he experienced some pretty extreme pain and loss. I mean, he lost his children, he lost his business, he lost his wealth, he lost some of his property, he lost his health, he was on the verge of death. And in the midst of his pain, Job never denied the agony he was in. He wasn't shy about expressing his feelings of disappointment to his wife, to his friends, or even to God. Job readily admitted to being confused by it all, and he, he was hoping for answers. He prayed and prayed. He questioned God about all as to why it was all happening to him. But in the end, Job never got an explanation. He didn't get an explanation. God never said to Job, well, Job, let me tell you, there's good reason for the pain. You know, I'm allowing you to suffer in order to make you a great man whose life and faith and example will impact and benefit millions of people over thousands of years to the point where in 2016 in the western suburbs of Chicago, people are going to be talking about you. He didn't get that information. God never told Job that, which I'm guessing was pretty frustrating for Job. And yet, in the darkness of his suffering, who Job was and what he really believed deep in his heart and mind came very clearly to light. And his suffering with an amazing degree of humble reverence, uh, Job declared, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. Even if he, he allows my life to be taken, I will trust him no matter what. Do so you see what happens there? Job essentially lived out what Proverbs 3, 5 through 12 is talking about. And here's the thing, you and I will live it out as well. It will be our story. It will be our experience. See, when we hear the words, <clears throat> trust in the Lord with all your heart, submit to him, humbly revere God and shun evil, when you hear that, it's, it's, it's easy for us to respond and say, yeah, I do that. But do we, really? Do you? I mean, be honest about it. Understand, at various points in your life, circumstances will legitimately test whether or not it's true. 
The way you handle your wealth, your money, do you honor God with it? Do you give generously to his cause in the world? Do you give him your first fruits? All that, all that tells a story. In times of painful adversity, do you affirm God's love for you as his child and that he knows what he's doing even if you, you, even if you don't? Make no mistake about it. In life, success and suffering both reveal the truth about who you are and what you really believe down deep in your heart and mind. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Submit to him. Honor him. For he is the Father who loves you no matter what. Let's pray. Father, even as the, the, the storm this morning rolled through our area, I was reminded how storms of life roll into our experience as unexpected. And, um, and they can rattle us to the core. Um, in the same way, success comes to us because of your, your favor. And we can handle our success in a way that's honoring to you are really ungrateful and dismissive. It's funny how two very separate experiences reveal the same truth about who we are deep down inside. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us not to lean on our own understanding because we can't understand everything. But we want to trust you with everything. And I pray that that would be true in our lives. Not just through our words, but through our actions. I pray we would trust you and submit to you and honor you. That we would fear you, our God, and avoid, avoid evil. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's funny how most of us in our lives, we, we spend our time pursuing, pursuing success. And when it comes right down to it, it's the suffering that makes us stronger. And it's suffering that transforms our spirits. Um, hopefully you found today's proverb helpful. I know I have. Um, I want to invite you to come back next week. Uh, we have a very special guest coming next week. He's a guy named Jeremy Courtney. I don't know if you've heard of him before. But Jeremy founded and runs a ministry in Iraq, um, one of the few that are there. And his ministry is to children with heart defects. They find doctors in the West and they get these children to doctors in the West and then they minister to their families and in, in so doing, minister to communities. Uh, in fact, Jeremy's organization is the only one in Iraq that's uh, doing anything like that. In fact, they're, they've been the only group that's been able to get uh, food and, and, and material goods into Fallujah. And two weeks ago, they were, they were in a caravan heading to Fallujah with, with trucks of food and, and water and all these things, and they were bombed by terrorists. Fortunately, no one in the, no one in the caravan was killed. But that's the kind of life Jeremy Courtney lives daily. And um, we happened to meet him in Washington, D.C., 
and we invited him to to come in and be with us. And he happened to be in the, coming into the states, and so he he's agreed to come. He's going to be here next week, and he's going to be talking about uh, life in Iraq and uh, what God is doing there. So I think you're going to find it fascinating. Make sure you come next week, okay? Why don't you stand with me? I'll I'll, I'll dismiss us. Let me pray for us. Father, in your sovereign love and care this week, we will no doubt have moments of success and moments of adversity, maybe severe suffering. I don't know what's ahead for us. But I pray as your church, as we leave this place, we would go knowing that you love us no matter what. You've proven that in Jesus. And so may we live our lives in honor of you, the way that we the words that we use, the way we live, the way we give, may our lives be honoring before you. And may you be pleased to lead others to Jesus, your son, through our lives. Now may your hand of grace and peace and love rest on the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.